Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Fred Bergsten, the founding director of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and now its director emeritus, and someone who has spent a lifetime in and around trade and foreign policy issues, including as an economic deputy to Henry Kissinger at the National Security Council. He's also the author of the thought-provoking new book, The United States versus China, The Quest for Global Leadership. I'm grateful to speak to him about the book, and its key insights and arguments. Fred, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. A policy narrative has emerged in recent years, particularly in light of the pandemic, about the rise of a new Cold War between the United States and China. You think this framing is wrong and even dangerous. Why? The framing comes from the historical reality that a rising power and a global incumbent power, China and the United States respectively, they do clash. And the issue is whether they can resolve those clashes without coming to blows and hopefully even in some cooperative mode. There is a tendency now in the United States and to some extent in China to regard this confrontation as irrevocably headed toward conflict, toward a new Cold War, toward decoupling of the two countries. Uh, In my view, that is an exceedingly dangerous prospect. It's wrong analytically because the two countries have every interest in working together cooperatively, particularly on economic issues like global warming and pandemic responses and uh, trying to keep the global trading system going in an open way. Uh, But there's a definite tendency in that direction. The countries are framing the relationship in zero-sum terms. If I gain, you lose. If you gain, I lose. Therefore, we have to deny you any possible gain. That is a very bad idea because it would forego all the possibilities of cooperation both for the two countries and for the global system as a whole, and it's totally infeasible. Donald Trump tried containment of China, and it failed miserably. China kept growing, the only major country to grow throughout the pandemic. Its share of world trade and investment grew enormously, despite the trade war with the United States. Trump's efforts, and no no other country, joined the U.S. effort to contain China. 
nor would any do so in the future. So I think containment is a dead end. It's a huge mistake. It would foster the prospect of a new Cold War and confrontation, and we better find a better way to go about it. Before we get to your alternative of what you call conditional competitive cooperation, let's just stay on the current situation. Where does the U.S.-China relationship stand now in your view? And what are the main factors that have led to their growing technological and geopolitical rivalry? The U.S.-China relationship stands on the precipice of descending into Cold War or worse. Confrontation is the order of the day. The recent Pelosi visit to Taiwan highlighted the hostility coming from China toward the United States and the U.S. readiness to push back uh, on all fours. Um, The relationship is being encouraged to go in that direction in both countries. A key reason is that Americans feel that they've been blindsided by the Chinese. For 20 or 30 years, under seven or eight presidents, the U.S. offered to cooperate with China, policy of so-called engagement, to try to bring China into the global economy, the global security system, to become a full partner. The Chinese seem to be headed in that direction, even perhaps toward opening up in political as well as economic terms. But in the last 10 years, it's clear that's not the case that China is adopting a more state-centered economic policy, is becoming more and more confrontational, more and more martial in its efforts in the South China Sea and elsewhere in security terms. So the U.S. feels jilted. The U.S. feels it wanted to bring China in, but China has refused. And now the U.S. is of the view, in large part, that China is an implacable enemy, that anything we, the U.S. or the West more broadly, do that enables China to strengthen itself further is a mistake and simply digs our own grave in the future because China is inevitably going to come at us, whether it's sooner or later, whether it's economic or military, they're going to come at us. And that is increasingly the conventional view in the United States. Now, there's a strong minority view, which I share and I'm trying to promote, which says, no, no, our, their gain is not necessarily our loss. The U.S. supported economic growth in its previous rivals, Germany, Japan, countries that we fought in the last big war. And that turned out very, very well. But people think that's not possible with China, viewing it as an implacable enemy, having a different ideology, having designs on global power supremacy, that would supplant the United States for the first time in 100 years. The U.S. does face, for the first time in the 100 years since it became the world's dominant country, a real rival. And that has to be managed in a much more effective way than it is now, or else we are headed toward disastrous outcomes. Your answer is a great segue into the next question I want to put to you, Fred. Well, you're critical of the Trump administration's policy of containment vis-a-vis China, it would be great to get your thoughts on the West's previous policy of engagement. Have the outcomes been on net positive in your estimation? And in hindsight, what, if any, aspects should have been thought about or executed differently? I think the results of engagement were 
inarguably positive. China became a full member of the world economy, joined all the global economic institutions, uh, has to a large extent played by the rules of those institutions. It's become by far the U.S.'s fastest growing export market, for example. It's become a major source of profits and jobs for American firms and workers. So the gains on that side were huge. And if you ask what the alternative was of confronting China and trying to halt their rise a long time ago, it would simply have encouraged them and almost forced them uh, to work even harder uh, to do it on their own, to become successful, to challenge uh, U.S. leadership. So I think engagement uh, had major benefits uh, and was the right policy at the time. And in fact, even most of the China hawks who want to put engagement totally in the rearview mirror uh, tend to agree that it was a, a reasonable gamble at the time. They call it a gamble, and to some extent, that's true. Now, uh, what people look back at engagement say was the big error was not being tough enough in requiring China to play by the rules of the game. Uh, China sometimes dismisses that criticism, saying that their negotiations to enter the World Trade Organization took 16 years. They made more concessions than any other developing country had ever made. Uh, they opened up their markets in many meaningful ways, all of which is true. But it is also true that they did not go far enough. They violated some of the principles that they agreed to. Many other issues that are now front and center were left unaddressed in that negotiation 20 to 25 years ago. The world has moved on. Uh, and so what is needed now is a good faith effort by China and the United States, Canada, and its other allies to renegotiate the rules of the road in ways that will accept that China has some different views on some of these things, but that we need to have agreed rules of the road if we're going to deal with the critical issues of the day, particularly the new ones like climate and pandemic. Only if we get together with China to work out new rules of the road that they are involved in writing, will we be able, I think, to get back to engagement and all the positives that come out of that approach. Uh, that's a fascinating answer, Fred, particularly your observation about the counterfactual alternative to engagement over the past uh, few decades. Even critics of engagement, uh, as you say, rarely put forward what an alternative history might have looked like and what those consequences may have ultimately been uh, for American political economy. A basic premise of the book is that the U.S. is no longer able to act as a unipolar power due to its own domestic challenges, as well as China's growing economic parity. In fact, as far back as 2008, you were arguing in Foreign Affairs magazine that America ought to be pursuing what the essay's headline called, quote, a partnership of equals. The book similarly argues that U.S.-China cooperation is essential to, quote, provide a foundation for a stable and successful international order. Let me put this to you. How much of your project is ultimately focused on sustaining the liberal international order in a world of bipolarity or multipolarity? A very large part of the book is aimed at that. The subtitle of the book, as you said at the start, is the, the quest for global economic leadership. And that's because we know from history that leadership, 
by uh, one or a few top powers is essential to keep the global economy functioning smoothly in an open way, avoiding trade wars, avoiding global depressions and recessions. In short, keeping the world economy stable and prosperous. The United States was largely able to do that on its own for the post-war first generation, several decades. Increasingly, its allies, Canada, Japan, the Europeans, uh, played an essential role in enabling that to happen. Look at the underlying economic realities now. And you mentioned this already. China is, for all practical purposes, the equivalent of the United States in economic power terms. On some metrics, it's in fact superior now to the United States. I don't think it makes too much difference who has a few trillion or more of GDP or who makes a few or less semiconductors. It's rough equivalence that puts China at the top of the scale with the United States, again, to emphasize, for the first time in a century since the United States became the top economy uh, over 100 years ago. This is the first real competitor, but it is a real competitor. And that means the US, even with continuing support from its traditional ally, is no longer able to call the tune, is no longer able to write all the rules, enforce all the rules, uh, maintain a stable and prosperous world. When I wrote that in 2008, I had fresh in mind that it was China, along with the US, but even more than the US, which brought the world out of the Great Recession and headed off a global depression. That was very constructive, very positive, global economic leadership by China. And they've been on other occasions. However, as I said before, they've also violated a lot of rules. And that has created tremendous backlash against them, most notably in the United States, but in other countries around the world as well. So the Chinese are risking their own core interests. China, of all countries, has been the biggest beneficiary of globalization. It's enabled them to have the most miraculous development story in the history of mankind, and it's continuing to this day, uh, despite some recent slowdowns. But China has been a massive beneficiary of the open world economy. If that economy were to close down on them, with global trade wars and investment restrictions and all the like that Trump tried, then they would be in real trouble. And they have to realize that their own policies are generating backlash, most notably in the US, that could lead to that outcome. So I believe it's in China's own interest, not out of any doing good for us or being nice to us, but very much in its own core interest in an open global economy, to keep its development going, to take steps that would result in cooperation with the US and its traditional allies in managing the global economy in the future. But that means, of course, that the US and its traditional allies have to accept China as a rough equal in structuring and managing the world economy. It's been done on an ad hoc basis, like in the global financial crisis over a decade ago. It was done just a couple of months ago, in fact, in the World Trade Organization, the U.S. and China worked out a deal that basically saved the World Trade Organization's big ministerial conference and, and thus the trading system. So it can be done even recently with all the confrontation, but that's got to be the strategy that the two countries adopt. 
This brings us to your idea of conditional competitive cooperation. What do you mean? And from the American perspective, how would this approach differ from the previous policy of engagement and the current policy of containment? What I am suggesting is a U.S. policy that has three basic parts. One is obvious competition. The U.S. and China will compete day to day in the economic and financial and trade markets. Their policies will compete with the affections of other countries, alliances, trade partners, and the like. So there will be an ongoing high degree of competitiveness in the relationship. There must also, as I've already outlined, be a cooperative element. Even if the U.S. and China continue to confront each other on some security issues like Taiwan, some human rights and values issues like the Uyghurs, even if those conflicts continue, they have to find a way to cooperate in the economic dimension and on global pragmatic issues. So that's the cooperative dimension. Then, to make it viable in both countries, in political terms, this all has to be conditional. Both countries have to take on obligations, and they have to fulfill those obligations. One of the reasons for disillusion in the U.S. with China is that the Chinese arguably have not lived up to some of the commitments they made when they joined the World Trade Organization, when they've taken other steps that uh, we in the West thought they were going to behave in a different way, they have failed to follow through on that. And the Chinese, uh, likewise, feel the U.S. has uh, undercut some of its own principles, as admittedly we do in some cases. So there has to be a conditional element. Each side has to monitor the other, have enforcement mechanisms and, and instrumentalities, uh, arrangements uh, for constant negotiation and consultation, uh, in order to monitor each other's performance in carrying out the obligations to each other and to the world as a whole. So I put that together in, as you say, what I call conditional competitive cooperation. It's a mouthful, but I think all three elements are essential if we're to avoid uh, heading down toward a new Cold War. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. A big part of this approach requires, as you say, the Chinese government's cooperation and engagement. What would you say to those who'd argue that this isn't a reliable assumption for the purposes of policymaking, given its lack of transparency on the pandemic, its growing assertiveness in Hong Kong and Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Skepticism is certainly justified because the Chinese have failed to follow through on some of the commitments they have made in earlier international agreements and in some of the international institutions uh, in which they participate. In the International Monetary Fund, for example, which they joined very early in their reform process, uh, they violated the most fundamental rule, uh, which is to not competitively devalue your currency 
they did that to the tune of three to four trillion dollars worth in a period of 10 to 12 years early in this century. Gross and flagrant and very costly violation of fundamental rules. More recently in the trade area, uh, they've required technology transfer to give firms access to their market. They provide huge subsidies to their state-owned enterprises and some others. So there are very clear violations of both the explicit rules and the implicit norms of the trading and investment systems that are the Chinese are guilty of. And since there are not very many effective enforcement mechanisms today, frustration has set in, and any new concord would have to have both mechanisms and agreed rules of the road to permit monitoring and enforcement of the new obligations. As I said a minute ago, I think that's very much in China's own interest because whatever at the margin they may gain from subsidizing their semiconductors or requiring the U.S. firms to transfer technology is swamped by the benefit to them of an open world economic system, which has permitted and galvanized their entire economic development miracle. So when the Chinese look at it carefully and when they realize that they are now bigging up, that their actions can trigger backlash with systemic consequences that could undermine the openness that is so important to themselves, then I think we have a shot at doing something positive. But it's going to require the U.S. and its allies to go to China and propose that approach. And it's going to require some enlightened leadership in China to pick it up. The obvious thing to do now would be to roll back the trade war. The U.S., in my view, should offer the Chinese to take off the tariffs that Trump put on in return, this is the conditional part, in return for the Chinese taking off all the tariffs they put on to reciprocate and retaliate against the Trump tariff. That would be a fully reciprocal deal. Nobody could say the US, Biden administration or whoever was capitulating or accommodating China or being soft on China. Be a fully conditional, fully reciprocal deal. And it would be a dramatic step to get the world headed in the right direction and pave the way for broader cooperation on economic topics. Let me pick up on the competitive part of your formulation. Is there upside here? Is a growing science and technology competition with China a potential catalyst for greater progress on innovation and productivity? In other words, Fred, is your vision for U.S.-China competition a potential means out of the so-called great stagnation. It is, and that's a very good point, uh, Sean. In fact, we've already seen it to some extent. The U.S. Congress, in one of its rare steps of bipartisan action, just passed major legislation greatly increasing U.S. research and development in uh, high-tech sectors, and specifically supporting a semiconductor industry that could restore a large measure of the lost U.S. competitiveness in that critical industry. That legislation had many fathers and many purposes, and it goes back a long way to its origins. But I think the catalyst that probably drove it to successful conclusion was the competition with China. And the recognition, which I give the Congress credit for, that the U.S. has to pull up its own side. Uh, We can't just say, well, China cheats and they're terrible and 
Therefore, we have to hit them over the head. Uh, we may have to do that sometimes, but uh, we have to pull up our own sock. Uh, we all know, you in Canada well know, the U.S. has many, many shortcomings now in its economic uh, uh, policies, its uh, broader society approaches, and its political dysfunction. We got lots of problems in the United States, and we have to put our own house in order if we're going to compete effectively with China. And the China rise does help galvanize that. So uh, that would be the positive side. When I, when I say additional competitive cooperation, I certainly have in mind competition in trying to be successful in R&D, innovation, uh, technological supremacy. Uh, that's healthy competition. Uh, if it goes too far down the subsidy road, it raises other problems. But if you try to do it in the traditional way, there's a lot of success to be achieved. That's a, that's a topic, incidentally, where the U.S. and China ought to sit down and discuss what is acceptable. No American in his right mind can uh, try to deny China technological advance. What we can do is say some of the ways you try to achieve your technological advance goes against all international norms and rules and laws, and therefore, uh, you should not go down those roads, like stealing technology. So that is a very fruitful area, and I would put right at the top of the list for this new cooperative relationship to try to put some guardrails around the competition to limit the extent to which it becomes uh, just another uh, zero-sum, uh, I win, you lose uh, round of competition. On the domestic policy front, Another big issue that has influenced thinking on the U.S.-China relationship is the question of the China shock and the concentrated consequences of higher rates of import penetration from Chinese goods in general and manufactured products in particular. To, to what extent, Fred, does the U.S. need to reconceptualize the way it supports called losers of a globalized economy to ensure that uh, the costs and consequences aren't disproportionately borne by particular regions, sectors, or individuals? Yeah, again, it's a, it's a fundamental question. One of the greatest failures and inconsistencies of U.S. policies over the last several decades has been the failure to help the adjustment process that is required of the losers from globalization. Uh, this goes back well before the China shock and, uh, and the competition from China to other countries, the Europeans, Canada itself, uh, other Asian countries, Japan in an earlier period was, uh, was uh, enemy number one. And through all that period, the U.S. administration of the day would always pay lip service to the need to compensate the losers, the workers who lost their jobs or took much lower incomes, uh, but never really did much about it. Uh, no administration, Democratic or Republican, ever gave serious priority to dealing with those adjustment problems. And as a result, over the decades, hostility to the process of globalization itself built up. Trade adjustment assistance which was the specific policy that was uh, promoted, became known as burial insurance because it only came along after you'd already lost your job and lost your skills and it was too late anyway. There was no proactive, preemptive effort 
to maintain a political foundation to support globalization. So while on the one hand, the U.S. was out trying to lead the world toward ever more open markets, it was not doing much at all at home to adjust to those open markets, which inevitably uh, were going to hurt some people. No economic policy change benefits everybody. There are some winners and some losers. On balance, the winners greatly outnumbered the losers. It was a huge net gain for the U.S. economy. Calculations at my institute showed uh, uh, we're gaining $2 trillion a year from the globalization of the last 50 years. But there's 50 billion to 100 billion or so of losses. And those people are concentrated and they have political clout. And finally, starting in the 1990s or so, that began to erode the political foundations of globalization. I always feared that the main threat to globalization was the United States, that internal fissures would emerge that would uh, undermine political support. And that's what's happened over the last 20 or 25 years. Now, Trump carried that to an extreme. He totally abdicated U.S. leadership. He uh, alienated allies as well as adversaries, uh, carried it to an extreme. But the underlying foundation has been seriously undermined, and that's going to take a while to build back. Uh, President Biden came into office saying we would have to uh, restore a lot of our domestic strength before we could go out and do new trade deals. I think that's a little too pessimistic, but you certainly have to do it in tandem, and you have to get that domestic house in order uh, to have a chance to get back to any kind of U.S. leadership of the world economy. As you say, Fred, your vision of globalized cooperation and exchange has found greater resistance in recent years than, than ever before. But one gets the sense that this may be changing a bit. The West's significant support for Ukraine in the face of Russia's invasion, for instance, has shown that liberalism may be stronger than one might think. What's your sense? What gives you optimism these days? I think as other countries have seen the results of a U.S. backing away from globalization and global leadership as dramatized under Trump, they've had to step back and say, whoa, we may not always like everything the U.S. does, but we sure need it out front. And I think the willingness of the traditional allies, of course, including Canada, in the Ukraine case, but more broadly now on a number of issues, is indication that we may be starting to have a backlash against the backlash, which is what we need. Now, the critical question, though, is going to be the attitude of China. Because for my vision to have a chance of taking place, the Chinese and the other main Asian countries who inevitably will group around China to some extent. It's the biggest trading partner, it's the nearest neighbor, it's a constant military uh, possibility overhanging them. So it's really China and most of Asia, which is the most dynamic part of the world economy and now probably the biggest part of the world economy. It's going to be their attitudes and their willingness to restore some version of globalization that I think will determine where this comes out. And that's why I think it's so critical 
for the U.S. and its traditional allies to reach out to China to try to structure and conceptualize that together. When Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, my old boss, went to China in the early 1970s, uh, they started at the conceptual level. Uh, they didn't talk much economics, but they talked about the global balance of power, the relationship of China to the Soviet-U.S. Uh, uh, Cold War of the day. Uh, they put it in conceptual terms before they went to the details and the uh, operational aspects of the new U.S.-China relationship. And that actually worked out pretty well and had a critical historical payoff. I think we need something like that now, given the deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship and the pivotal point at which China now uh, rests, uh, whether to continue down the Xi Jinping path of more state control of the economy, uh, less democracy, more autocracy, more authoritarianism, or to get back on the earlier reform path, which still uh, had the Communist Party in charge, still was no democracy, uh, still was no market economy by our style, but was much more compatible with the world in which we live. They've got to make some key choices in that area, but their choices will be affected by how we approach them and how open we are to working with them. And that's ultimately why I think it's so crucial to do so. Let's wrap up by bringing the conversation closer to home, if that's okay. What should Canadian policymakers be thinking about in light of the issues that we've been discussing? How can Canada navigate a world of conditional competitive cooperation? Well, I would first hand out a lot of kudos to Canada and to the Europeans and the Japanese for providing a good bit of the economic leadership that went missing when Trump abdicated for the U.S. And, and was even declining before that under Bush 43 and Obama. Uh, the traditional allies of the United States have really stepped into that policy vacuum in a major way. And Canada, uh, particularly in the trade area, but also in the climate change area, has really been a, a crucial actor. So I, I hand out major uh, kudos to Canada for doing that. Going forward, I think it's more of the same, but a really two-track approach is needed. One is to continue to plug the vacuum to the extent it continues to exist and maybe even gets worse given the U.S.-China confrontation, but also to work with the other traditional allies, particularly the Europeans and Japan, to really press the United States to move in this direction with China that we're talking about today. Okay, you're going to disagree on the South China Sea and the Uyghurs and Hong Kong and Taiwan and a lot of things. And we, Canada and Europeans, will probably agree with you on that. We don't like those things either. But we have a world economy to run. Uh, we have pragmatic considerations to maintain and hopefully even improve the openness and stability and prosperity of the global economy. And we can only do this with China, not in confrontation with them, not in some foolhardy effort to contain them. So I would say to Canada and other U.S. friends, lean on the U.S. in friendly ways. The Japanese 
Yatsu, meaning uh, foreign pressure to get us to do what we ought to do anyway. Well, we need some Gayatsu for the United States. Uh, it's it's uh, friends and allies and colleagues need to lean on it to move in the right direction. And I think demonstrably that has effect over time. Uh, the Biden administration has not really changed Trump's policies toward China very much, but it has, of course, changed policies fairly dramatically toward allies, whether it's NATO or in the economic dimension, and shown a much greater readiness to understand the allies are crucial for the United States. In my book, I emphasize that when you look at the economies of the traditional U.S. allies added up, they're bigger than the U.S. economy. In other words, it more than doubles the clout of the West and can stick together vis-a-vis uh, -vis China and everybody else. I don't think those allies will mobilize for containment or, or try to keep a thumb on China, but in terms of constructive relationships, try to bring China in constructive directions, try to work with them, uh, I think those alliances could hold quite well and provide a new dimension. We know from China's past behavior that it is ready to resist bilateral, unilateral pressure from the United States, but it's much less likely to resist truly multilateral pressure. When the rest of the China, China does not want to be uh, isolated in the world, it does not want to be ganged up on. In fact, it hates that thought. And it would very much respond, I think, to a multilateral front on the issues that we're talking about today, be it the pandemic, be it the system, be it financial crises, where it is absolutely essential to get results, but where a multilateral approach to it could be very pivotal. So I would urge Canada to do that, work with your other allies, set up a kind of non-US G7 that will collude to bring the US along and work on that in the most thoughtful way. The book is The United States versus China, The Quest for Global Leadership. Fred Bergston, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. <laughs>